Hello, good evening, and welcome to Seascapes. On tonight's programme, trans-Atlantic rower Damien Brown making landfall in Galway, why cats on ships are lucky, and new research locating the shipwrecks of the Irish Sea. Former Connacht rugby player Damien Brown made history this week as the first man to row from New York to Galway and one of only a handful of people to have ever rowed solo in both directions across the Atlantic. As we heard from his blog on the programme last week, he was expected to arrive in Galway this week. But he had an unexpected landfall in the early hours of Tuesday morning when his boat Cushion McCree ran aground off Neferbica on the way into Galway. Thankfully, he was located by Gardaí, checked out by paramedics and arrived home at 2.30am to his parents' house in Renmore. Lorna Siggins attended the homecoming in Galway Docks for Seascapes. That's the sound of ship's horns and sheer delight as transatlantic rower Damien Brown arrived into Galway after 112 days at sea last Tuesday morning. The former Connacht rugby player and extreme adventurer's unplanned landfall off Neferbica in the early hours didn't affect the homecoming ceremony as he was driven by rib through Galway's lock gates by Captain Brian Sheridan. As up to a thousand people waited for that on the Middle Quay, I spoke to his Project Empower teammate Fergus Gussie Farrell, who had planned to row the Atlantic with Brown, but had to be evacuated after 13 days at sea when he took ill. I first asked him when he heard about Damien's capsize, the fifth off Neferbica. Uh, so um, I was looking after Justin Atkin, the boat builder, and uh, Chris Martin, the uh, weather router, who helped him across the Atlantic. So I was with them, and uh, Chris Martin got the phone call, and he rang me very quickly and I picked them up and uh, brought them out to where the boat was in Furbo. Uh, so I, I suppose it was probably, I think it was only like 20 minutes, half an hour after it happening that we were, and then say another 20 minutes, half an hour, we're, we're at the boat. So, so it was you, very, you went out to Furbo? Yeah, we, I brought the two lads out to Furbo, um, but when we got there, Damien had been had a, had been had rescued and he got the all clear from the, the medics and he was on his way back to his family in Remore. So we just went and uh, uh, scanned the boat to see what damage was done and was it recoverable and all that type of stuff. And the good news is, according to the boat builder and, and, and uh, Chris Martin, it is. So that's great. Yeah. And uh, how were his, his seal? He had sea legs. Was he able to walk? I don't know. We didn't see him. I haven't seen him. I haven't talked to him since. So I honestly don't know. But I'm sure he has. He has to have, you know, after 112 days of sea, he has to have sea legs. If he doesn't, it's not humane. <laughs> and how are you feeling yourself? It's very exciting, isn't it? Yeah, it's very exciting for Damo. It's, it's you know, um, he's, I said, back to dry land, 112 days out in the ocean, vast majority of those on his own. So I'm extremely excited for him. I can't like, you know, it's some achievement. Well, it's an achievement for you. I mean, 13 days, that was a long time in that boat. Um, yeah, I suppose it was a long time for me to be on that boat because uh, I'd never done that length of time on a boat ever before, not even on a cruise ship. So uh, yeah, it was, uh, yeah, so it was, uh, yeah. Look at uh, I've had good experiences and and whatnot from it. So uh, I, I'm I've looking back, I've, I can say I enjoy my time on that boat. It's a joint project, isn't it? Yeah, it is indeed. And uh, as I said, uh, unfortunately, we couldn't complete it together. But Damien has. Uh, Doing the good deed, and he's got Crush McCree back into Galway. Um, and um, as I said, the good part is it's repairable and it's fixable, and Damo's safe and sound. 
Several well-known Galway fishermen and sailors missed the homecoming ceremony only because they were working very hard out at Neferbica to refloat Cushla McCree. And so, when they towed it back into Galway, Damien Brown went back out when almost everyone had gone home and rowed it through Galway's lock gates, just as he had pledged to do. I spoke to him shortly before that and first asked him how did he feel about being greeted by several Gardaí in the early hours of Tuesday morning. Two guards I saw, I was sitting on the rock. Um, I called McDowell, I called my weather router, Chris, uh, using the broadband satellite uplink because my own personal phone was dead. So I was sitting on a rock, no shoes, with this broadband thing trying to get a, a signal. And, um, Were you able to walk? I wasn't really able to walk, no. I had to crawl across the rocks for a little bit, uh, but just had to get away from the boat. It was, it was quite dangerous. Or it could have been anyway. It was getting there, and it was in the end. But um, And then I just saw the flashlights eventually, like 20 minutes later, behind this mound. And I was like, grand. I just started flashing my phone, torch, and sure enough, two guards. So I wasn't sure if the EPRB activated, and my radio was playing up so I wasn't sure if the distress on that went out either so that's why I had to get a kind of that's why I rang the two lads first and then uh, two guards turned up and they helped me to kind of ah no 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 not at all no I was safe I was grand I was just I couldn't really walk (laughs) Uh, and um, it was uh, like so so I had my sea legs right and then um, I had no perception of where the ground was because I was in the wash of the water and the rocks. So I was just falling everywhere. So that's why I had to crawl. And, uh, and parkings was a long crawl. So I was glad to see the two lads coming. <laughs> Were you really afraid at any point? I know you've seen, probably seen worse, but... I, I felt I had control of the situation until I saw the two rocks. So basically what happened was I, I just misjudged how close I was to the shore. And I looked around because I was constantly head on a swivel and there was two rocks only like I was about less than 10 seconds from hitting them. So I swung the boat around like 270 degrees like in an instant and then started rowing out into the big breakers. But they were huge and one of them capsized me and I heard the oar break and then I knew I was fucked. Sorry. Um, As in from finishing. Uh, and then the boat just, I had no choice, the boat just washed up onto the rocks and then I just got off. So I wasn't really, I was never afraid, it was a very tense night, very tense. But I, I felt I was in control until I wasn't in control, right? That's how many capsizes now? Five. Yeah. Yeah. Undoubtedly, um, mentally and emotionally, like far, far harder than it is physically. Uh, my hands are, they'll be beaten up now for a while, it's just to get you kind of get stuck into that claw grip of just gripping the oars for 12 hours a day that's the worst thing uh, and uh, my backside from sitting down for uh, tw- 11 hours a day and just been wet um, but generally I'm okay a huge weight loss and um, uh, that's it really in physically you know it's it's not it's not the worst thing in the world you can do physically but mentally and emotionally it's it's right up there it's as hard as hard as it gets <laughs> So I had just headwinds constantly, and they're the most demoralizing thing in the world. And to be able to deal with that mentally, day after day after day, when you're going nowhere and you want to go someplace, is, is very difficult. And what did you draw on when you were at your lowest? I always I have just a deep belief that I was going to complete it, like nothing was going to stop me, you know. And that's built on 20 plus years of pushing myself physically and mentally to the brink and building myself up that way. So I just knew if I don't stop, 
I'll get here and I didn't stop you know I didn't stop until I hit the rocks anyway in, uh, in Furbo uh, and uh, I crawled onto Galway and I made it and that's the most important thing and I was safe no the most important thing is I was safe um, and then I, I you know I made it but uh, so that that belief and then there was times where especially early on I used a lot of like imagery for what this would look like you know getting into Galway from the Aran Islands in I almost kind of had it like a checklist the Aran Islands and then you know you'll see uh, Inverne and you might see the planes kind of flying over and then you know you'll see Spiddle and then Barna and then Silver Strand and then Gentian Hill and then Black Rock and then Mountain Island and then the docks and the docks what's that going to look like so I just had that really rich uh, and full like a lot of um, senses in that imagery and uh, it wouldn't be wrong it wouldn't be long changing your perspective around things you know your mother sent you a sandwich? Yeah, requested. I um, I ate cold, dehydrated rations for 87 days. So um, when I knew there was a boat coming out to take photos, mm-hmm. I was like, ma'am, I'll take four sandwiches, please, <laughs> and some fizzy sweets and some um, peanuts and crisps. And I think a lot about food out there because um, you're so deprived of... Uh, decent taste you know yeah. um, what was in the sandwich uh, it was uh, classic uh, ham cheese tomato red onion mm-hmm. lots of it tasted like I cannot describe great band. yeah <laughs> oh yeah the way it worked out I actually got to spend this morning with my family already and um, and last night of course <laughs> knocking on my parents door at half two in the morning and my partner Roselle sticks her head out hello and I'm like baby it's me <laughs> and she's like what <laughs> so um, and then we had last night you know and then um, so that that was really nice in a way you know if you want to look on the bright side of uh, the way it finished um, and just more generally it's it's such the things that come up for you out there are really innocuous moments that you spend with people uh, but it makes it the perspective it gives you around that and how important those things are is really important you know so it's just to spend time with friends and reconnect and um, have a cup of coffee and go for a sandwich and have a pint and have a snack box and all that sort of thing that you know you mightn't think is important to you uh, until uh, you're on day 60 and you're going nowhere and you're like geez I love that now you know so yeah and you yeah. see your daughter I'm sure of course yeah yeah I know play with like play with Elodie and um, just spend time uh, reconnecting with uh, Roselle and Elodie and I mean most of it revolves around them you know it's it's a huge sacrifice on their parts like I mean it was six, 16 weeks last night on that boat 17 weeks since I saw them um, my daughter's 17 months old and I haven't been there for six months of her life so it's not it's not uh, how I envision myself being a father so it's just you know spending as much time as possible with them and playing that role better you know and yeah so the southern ocean might be waiting it will be waiting yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah I don't know uh, an ocean rowing boat <laughs> will be waiting generally I think for a while uh, it was an unbelievable experience and I, I, I got so much from it and uh, although like the I talk about the challenges of it and how de- de- deep you have to dig and how hard those are. Th- th- that's what I want, you know. I need those because it gives me a better perspective on life. It gives me a more understanding on who I am. So I, 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 I look on it all with absolute gratitude. Like, and, uh, and I, I actually believe everybody should do an ocean row. It just gives you just the most <laughs> incredible outlook on life and uh, and it makes you appreciate the small little things that we can just pass by in an instant and not think about. So. 
So um, yeah, I I just uh, I just yeah, I w I won't be on an ocean rowing boat for a while, but I never say never again. Uh, I will never do a solo one again. That's me done. Thanks, Gussie, but uh, um, I'm done with solos and. Uh, yeah, it's a beautiful thing to do and I, I take a lot from it but uh, from going forward uh, it will be a long time before you see me in, in the Southern Ocean on an ocean road but it's a And congratulations to Damien Brown on that epic adventure Now one thing Damien didn't have on Cushion McCree was a cat but if he had it could have proven lucky and Norman Freeman tells me why cats are considered lucky on board ship There's a long history of cats being carried on board vessels of all kinds the early Egyptians took cats on their Nile sailing boats in order to catch birds in the bushes along by the riverbanks. Cats were carried on trading ships in the ancient world, partly to keep rodents in check. This led to the spread of domesticated cats to many parts. Phoenician merchant vessels from the eastern Mediterranean are thought to have brought cats to Western Europe about 900 BC. Many myths about cats were held by superstitious sailors. Cats were supposed to have supernatural powers that could protect ships from bad weather. Some of these beliefs were realistic. Cats are able to sense slight changes in the weather because of their acutely tuned inner ears. Low atmospheric pressure, a usual indication of bad weather, often makes cats nervous and restless. So, in ancient times, their behaviour served as a warning to prepare for stormy seas. As well as that, cats were regarded as intelligent animals. They provided a form of companionship for sailors. It was believed to be a lucky omen if a cat approached a sailor on deck. One of the most publicised cats in modern times was called Blackie. He was the mascot of the British battleship the Prince of Wales. At the start of World War II, this vessel was one of the most formidable warships afloat. In August 1941, she carried the British Prime Minister Winston Churchill to Newfoundland to meet the US President Franklin D. Roosevelt. When Churchill was disembarking, with the sailors standing to attention as a guard of honour, Blackie came forward along the deck towards him. Churchill stooped down and rubbed its head. A photo was taken of this gentle act. The British propaganda system sent it all round the world. It contrasted with photos of the harsh face of Adolf Hitler with his menacing Alsatian. In honour of the event, the cat was renamed Churchill. Another famous cat went to sea on board the Bismarck, Germany's massive battleship in World War II. When the warship was sunk by the British in 1941, the cat was amongst the 116 very lucky survivors out of a crew of 2,200. It was found floating on a board and picked up by the British destroyer Cossack. The crew named it Oscar. A few months later, the Cossack itself was sunk by a German torpedo, losing 159 of its crew. Again, the cat was rescued. It became the mascot of the aircraft carrier Ark Royal. This ship was in turn torpedoed and sunk. Oscar clung to a plank and was picked up by a motor launch. Someone with dry English humour described it as angry but unharmed. After that, it was decided the cat had enough wartime adventures. It was given a home in the offices of the Governor of Gibraltar and some time later sent to the UK. 
It actually ended up in a home for seamen in Belfast and died there in 1955. A pastel portrait of it, entitled Oscar, the Bismarck's Cat by Georgina Shaw Baker, hangs in the British National Maritime Museum in Greenwich. Norman Freeman. And given the number of times ships sank under him, Jonah might have been a more appropriate name for Oscar, I think. Now, Echoes from the Deep is a new book just published by Bangor University academic Innes McCarthy. In the study, he's undertaken to locate 273 shipwrecks in the Irish Sea and to map them fully. He told me about this study. Well, it was quite a gargantuan piece of research. Um, the idea was to, to see whether it was possible to look at a, a large stretch of the sea, in fact, in this case, 7,500 square miles, and survey using a technology called multi-beam echo sounder every single known shipwreck in the area. Um, what the um, technology allows us to do is to create a three-dimensional model of every object, which is quite detailed. Then um, the, once we'd built up that data set, and there were um, 273 shipwrecks there, um, then the, the next thing was to uh, overlay over the, the map uh, the uh, recorded historically recorded positions of every known shipping loss since 1840 um, over the top of that, and then go through the, go through the somewhat time-consuming process of lining up the history with the, with the sunken ships. And the area we're talking of about more or less is the Irish Sea uh, from the south, the southern tip of Wales to the north of Wales. That's correct. Yeah, it's from it's from just north of Anglesey down to southern Wales, going across into uh, the just the edge of the 12-mile zone on the Irish side and on the eastern side, the 20-metre uh, 20, 20 limit. The, the most basic question anybody could ask, why are there so many shipwrecks in that area? Well, that's a good question. Um, the, the, the shipwrecks fall into two broad categories. You have uh, the accidents that occur offshore. So these aren't collisions with the shore because we, were, we didn't go inshore. These are accidents that occur to ships while they're going around their business i mean they're either collisions or they're they've been founded in storms or they've had technical problems and they account for a sort of base load of one or two every year throughout the period under study but then on top of that which increases the numbers very significantly um are the ships that are sunk in wartime and in particular in the first world war so and um, we found out that nearly 50 percent of all of the ships that are sunk in this area were sunk by german submarines in world war one that's an incredible amount of number of ships in a short period of time well, it is. I mean, one of the um, aspects of the First World War that um, isn't that well known is, is um, the effect that it had on on shipping. You know, we, the U-boats are generally thought of in uh, you know in sort of like common thinking. Everyone thinks of World War Two. Everyone thinks of Das Boot. Um, but the reality is, the, the Germans uh, German submarines sunk twice as many ships in World War One as they did in World War Two, and suffered twenty percent of the casualties in doing so. So they were much more efficient about going around their business in World War One, and and the other thing is that the ships that were sunk by U-boats in World War One were predominantly around Britain. In World War Two, they're out in the Atlantic. So we and Britain and Ireland, Ireland's got, got perhaps even more ships sunk around it than, than 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 Britain has, but they're from this period, and it's a major characterising feature of shipping losses. Uh, in Northern Europe, particularly around Britain and Ireland, that they are sunk in World War One. Is that because the British Navy at the time just didn't have the defences against submarines? Well, it's a, it, the, the the first U-boat war is a, is a is a tricky bit of history, but um, it, to put it in um, 
to put it in the most basic of terms, um, in 1917, the uh, Germans were starting to lose the war. They recognised they were starting to lose the war, so um, they break all all the um, understand un, un, understood tenets of international law and launched a a 100% out and out attack on shipping at the beginning of 1917, and they were sinking you know, up to 20, 25 ships a day, 400 a month in. Uh, in 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 april and at that time ships were sailing independently and they were incredibly vulnerable um so what happens in june 1917 is the the allies then adopt a convoy sailing system and that starts to reduce the losses um and germany's great gamble of um, starving britain out of the war by sinking all of its ships fails but it only fails right at the last minute and it is actually quite desperate for a few months well, we know that the all around the Irish coast you mentioned it littered with the uh, ships sunk by U-boats. How physically did you go about surveying these these ships? Yeah, we used the um, Bangor University's bespoke um, science research vessel, the Prince Madog. It's uh, so a well-known, popular ship in uh, in in Wel- Welsh waters, um, and it's equipped with multi-beam echo sounder, which is a uh, 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 a survey technology which uses sound instead of light and uh, maps the seabed and, and in mapping the seabed it picks out shipwrecks i mean we identified 129 ships uh out of the 273 and uh, there's a there's a data sheet for each one of those in the book with a with a with an image a, a site plan of, of each of the wrecks one of the ships we had a particular interest in is called the ss masaba tell me about her well, the SS Masaba was uh, an ocean liner uh, built by Holland and Wolf in Belfast, and it was one of countless uh, dozens and dozens and dozens of these types of vessels that clomped along between uh, between Britain and, uh, and Ireland and, and the United States, um, delivering cargo and passengers. And its uh, its moment in history happened to come on a night in um, 1912 when it found itself in the same stretch of ocean as the Titanic on its maiden voyage. And um, uh, in as, a, uh, as, as a routine, uh, Masaba sent out a radio signal warning of uh, ice much further to the south than would be expected. Um, we know that this message was picked up by Titanic. In fact, it was the last of five such messages Titanic received. Um, but the message itself never left the radio room, so the bridge was never alerted to the fact that there was ice in front of it. And uh, as we know, the rest is uh, history, as they say. So they didn't. The captain didn't know there was ice in the area. Well, the the radio message from Masaba was not sent to the bridge. Um, the the primary reason for this is that the radio that was on Titanic um, wasn't there for the purposes of navigation. Um, it was there as uh, the, a newfangled gizmo. Uh, for the first-class passengers to use to send messages to and from their friends, saying, "Hey, we're in the middle of the Atlantic. You know, isn't it great? We can talk to you on. We can send messages via radio." And so the two radio operators who were working on time—that was their job—and uh, they had a backlog of messages to, to 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 send out. So when this message came in, they just put it on one side and didn't do anything with it. But the Masaba went on. What was her ultimate fate? Uh, well, Masaba just went went on about its business. It it, it got uh, a little more elderly and was was uh, was briefly taken out of service. But come uh, the First World War, uh, it finds itself uh, much in demand, as just about every other uh, other ship in the world was at some point. And um, it survived uh, all the way through to September 1918. So almost right at the end of the war, 
when it was on a convoy um, traveling from uh, Manchester um, to, to, to the United States and was uh, halfway down the Irish Sea when the convoy was attacked by a German submarine. Um, the submarine fired two torpedoes and hit two ships, and both of the ships sank. Um, the first to sink was the Masaba. Uh, 20 people died on Masaba. You have a unique way of publishing this book, and that it, it's free. It's called Echoes from the Deep, and people can get it from Sidestone.com, which is the publisher? That's correct, yeah. If you Sidestone.com, and then um, just search for Echoes from the Deep, or search on my name, and the book will come up, and you can read it for free right, right, right there on the website. Why Alternatively, you can order a, order a hard copy if you want. Why are you doing that, giving it away for free? It's, uh, it's become um, a, a fashion in academic publishing um, called open access, um, so that, so that um, people can read the book without having to pay for it, and try, try and spread what we do to a wider audience. And thanks to Innes McCartney. And you can download that book, Echoes from the Deep, for free from the publisher, Sidestone.com, or you can buy a hardcover copy for £20. Now, before we go tonight, I would like to pay a tribute to a longtime friend and avid listener to Seascapes, Petty Officer Sean Kavanagh of the Naval Service, who died last weekend. Sean served for many years in the Navy, and after retirement from service, was the longtime telephone receptionist at the Hall Bowling Base. He was also the founding member of the Cork and Cove branch of the Ognaghan Veterans Organisation and our deepest sympathies to his wife Breda and children Claudine and Bill. And that's it for Seascapes for this week. We're back at the same time next Friday. Everything on the programme's podcast, it's on our website, rte.ie slash seascapes. If you want to contact me or the program, the email is seascapes at rte.ie. If you're anywhere on or near the water over the next week, stay safe. Seascapes is presented and produced by Fergal Keane.